Yeah, Skip. So like I was saying, um, you know, I'm coming from things from like a mental health perspective. I'm very interested in anxiety and panic attacks and things of like the intersection where people have, you know, existential dread and lack of meaning and, you know, fear in life. And then where that intersects with how does that manifest in their behavior or in moments of, you know, falling apart, like a panic attack or something like that. And in preparation for this, I was going through man and his symbols and I, I, cause I wanted to look up what, I, where I had annotated to ask you some questions. And there was a, the one passage in this book that when I read it, it stuck in my mind and I, I forgot where it was and I hadn't opened this in, you know, six, seven months. So I opened it and the very first page, it showed up on page 31. And so I want to read you this passage and get your thoughts. Um, this is Jung. I have more than once been consulted by well-educated and intelligent people who've had peculiar dreams, fantasies, or even visions, which have shocked them deeply. They have assumed that no one who is in a sound state of mind could suffer from such things, and that anyone who actually sees a vision must be pathologically disturbed. A theologian once told me that Ezekiel's visions were nothing more than morbid symptoms, and that when Moses and other prophets heard voices speaking to them, they were suffering from hallucinations. You can imagine the panic he felt when something of this kind spontaneously happened to him. We are so accustomed to the apparently rational nature of our world that we can scarcely imagine anything happening that cannot be explained by common sense. The primitive man, confronted by a shock of this kind, would not doubt his sanity. He would think of fetishes, spirits, or gods. So to me, that's very interesting because I, I and I discussed this with a, a friend of mine on a different podcast, is like, we live in a world where we don't, you know, we've kind of abandoned religion, we've abandoned God, we're putting everything through a materialist, rationalist lens. So when people have crazy dreams, or, you know, just breaks from reality, the only description is, well, I must be mentally ill, I must be in a DSM diagnostic category or something. And that's um, absolutely not true. Right, right. And I want right. to get your thoughts. And I know just, I know you talked about, um, you were, you were possessed by an anima, or the anima for a yes. period of time. And then yes. you've also had visions with, uh, is it Mephistopheles, right? Oh, so yes. anything yeah. in that, yes. That was I'd be my curious favorite. To know <laughs> yes, right, so. Well, uh, let me first say that um, the part of your psyche that is the boss is the self, okay? It's not your ego, okay? It's the self in Jung's context which he also calls the greater personality or uh, the God image. Now that self has developed for the last three and a half billion years um, since life itself began. And what it has done is it has made it possible for you and I to have a conversation now, okay? Because, um, every one of our ancestors going back three and a half billion years, and we all have them that far back, um, every single one of them did two things successfully. They survived until they reproduced, okay? Now, most of those ancestors uh, did not have um, consciousness in, in our modern context. Um, you know, you. you human beings were also primitive until uh, a couple hundred thousand years ago is what I guess. And so in all that time, 
your self, your psyche uh, has kept you alive in many ways. I mean, for example, um, your heart beats 72 times a minute and you never think about that, you know, usually anyway. Uh, you breathe 12 times a minute, you never think about that. That's not, not in your conscious mind, but your body is just doing that. Uh, your all of your cells, except I guess bones, uh, regen and brain tissue, our brain cells uh, regenerate every seven years. So you're not the same physical person you were even seven years ago. Um, and so our body, the human body knows a lot of things that we don't consciously know mm. or think about or, or have in our consciousness, right? And so one of those functions that it has, that all creatures have, uh, and certainly our um, primate predecessors, is um, instinct to survive. And so, uh, for example, you probably have had the experience of um, uh, feeling like you're falling if you're just going to sleep and and waking up with a start. Well, that that's an autonomic response that developed in primates before there were human beings, but because our ancestors were living in trees to protect them from predators, mm, and yeah. and that that response probably took a million years to develop or more okay a billion years i'm sorry a billion years to develop not a million and um and so we still have it and almost all human beings still experience it at some point you just wake up with a start and you feel like you're falling out of a tree that's what it really literally is and it's it's the automatic response that wakes you that you know saves your life unless it wakes you up and makes you hold on to the tree right, right. <laughs> you know? right okay so our body knows a lot of stuff we don't okay consciously we don't consciously know and so it never tells us anything we don't need to know okay and so when you say people have hallucinations or um, visions or dreams, yeah, your, yourself, the, Jung used to call it the two million year old man, but it's actually the three and a half billion year old mm -hmm. man. Uh, that um, the self is constantly doing things to keep you alive. And one of them, is saying, uh, pay attention to this. <laughs> you know, here's something you ought to think about, mm -hmm, reflect sure. upon. And so, um, I won't talk about other people's dreams and visions, but I'll tell you about one of mine that's very practical, and um, and you'll probably relate to it. Um, I have never needed a radar detector. Okay. I've never needed a radar detector. And the reason is that every time I'm there's a speed trap or any other police activity in my near life in the next 
if if I'm going to see a police car within two to three minutes, I get a vision. The vision is always exactly the same. It's a police car, a black and white police car with the word police across the side. It's going from right to left across my, my field of view. And it's a vision. And it says, police, pay attention. Mm. And it works better than a radar detector. Wow. And But invariably, if that vision pops up, in my psyche, if I think about that, or if I think about the police, you know, if I'm driving along and all of a sudden I think about the police, then almost invariably within two to three minutes, I'll see police, police activity of some sort. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, it's very useful on the highway because <laughs> um, it, it comes up before speed traps. Now, why does it work? Well, it works because uh, when we're driving along, maybe the oncoming traffic changes its speed ever so slightly, just um, just a little bit when it, when the oncoming traffic has already seen the speed trap, okay? Right. Or the oncoming traffic has already seen the cop. You haven't seen them yet, but boom, it's there, okay? Every time. So the traffic slowing down in the other direction prompts your unconscious to think there must be a speed trap up there. And then right. That's and then it delivers me Interesting. that vision. Interesting. Okay. And the other, the other one is, uh, is, you know, flashing headlights. People flash headlights when they see a speed trap. Right, 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 right. right. Sometimes. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of subtle cues that, you know, you're not consciously thinking about, you're going along talking to your wife or what have you, and uh, you're never even thinking about that. But all of a, su a sudden, boom, you get this vision. I do anyway, that's my vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you have to be sensitive to what your visions are, right? But that's mine, and that's what it looks like. And whenever I get that vision, I immediately slow down and mind my P's and Q's in my driving because I know I'm going to see police activity of some sort. And when and you say it's a vision, I mean, do you act, do you physically see it as if it's yes. in your line of sight? Interesting. Okay. Right. In other words, it's, you know, it would be like something going across a movie screen or a TV screen. Sure, 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 sure. In my, in, you know, and, you know, it's like when you're, okay, you're driving along and you're listening to an audible book, for example, you're actually seeing the, story in your mind sure eye. okay okay and so you know that i'm seeing it in my mind's eye um you know i'm not i'm not physically seeing it in these two eyes right right right, right. like a hallucination it's it appears in your in your psyche yeah right and and so um you know that sort of thing happens all the time uh and sometimes um you know, sometimes these things are triggered by trauma. Um, and so um, uh, the, the Mephistopheles vision that you uh, mentioned, I did have, and um, it came up in the following circumstance. Um, my, my daughter had been to Russia for about two years with, on a USAID fellowship and um, she came back to Washington and it was her 22nd birthday. 
So I invited her out to out to dinner for her birthday. We went to this lovely uh, Afghan restaurant in downtown Washington, and we had a wonderful time talking because we had so many things that we had done together. Um, I had taken them to Japan when she was three years old and spent five years there in Japan with her. We had traveled around the world together when she was a little girl. And uh, although I later divorced her mother, I always stayed close to the, my daughters, right? And, um, and so we had this lovely evening, but she had fallen in with fundamentalists in, in uh, Kazan, Tataristan. These are Christian fundamentalists. Sure. And because there weren't any other um, Americans around, she naturally mm. got attracted to their group because they were American young people who right. were, who were uh, a little bit of, little bit of Stockholm syndrome. Right, right, right. And so we have this lovely evening for three hours together. I'm just um, a buzz with happiness about the time we've spent together. And the last thing she says to me, she says, well, dad, I'm sorry to say this to you, but I think you're going to hell. It's rough. Who teaches a child to say such a thing to a parent? Mm. You know, among other things. I mean, but fortunately, I did not fall into the devil's trick, which is important to understand, okay? Uh, and Ann Ulanoff, who's a Jungian um, psychiatrist, she's, and she was professor of, believe it or not, psychology and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Okay, so Ann Ulanoff talks about the devil's trick. And the devil's trick would be for, that I would blame it on my daughter, blame that comment on my daughter, get angry with her, and um, start doing all kinds of spiteful things and basically lose my daughter over it. Mm -hmm, okay, sure. that's, that's the devil's trick. But, um, so, but I did blame it on fundamentalists that she'd fall, fallen into, um, in with, in Kazan. So I, I, I left this dinner and I had to drive from Washington back to Annapolis where I live. This is Annapolis behind me. That's the Chesapeake Bay Bridge there. And um, as I was dri driving across, I had, and probably this vision lasted five to 10 seconds. I'm not exactly sure how long, okay. but I'm driving along at 65 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, Mephistopheles plops down in the passenger seat of my car. Like the devil, right? Mephistopheles the devil, is... Mephistopheles, but Mephistopheles, that I, as I had imagined him in Faustus. Okay, I read Faust when I was in college, you know, 50, 60 years ago, now, 55 sure. years ago. But I'd read Faust and I had a vision of what Faust would look like. And this was the guy. What did it okay. look like? Was it? horns well, he, and he, you know he was uh you know red with a black beard and right and so on and horns and so mm -hmm. on and um so i i 
I said, I'm going to cut the Fa Faustian bargain with you, which is that you can have my eternal soul on my death, provided none of my daughters think that of me for the rest of my life. And boom, he disappeared. Interesting. Okay. Now, did he did he did he appear in your actual vision, or was it still in the mind's eye type? Well, fortunately, I was into Jungian psychology enough by then that I knew that it was it was a, a psychic emanation. It was a psychic event, right. but but nonetheless, it seemed quite real. Mm. And you know, you can imagine if you have a vision like that it can be quite frightening and you can drive it along i would imagine yeah 65 miles an hour on a icy highway and satan shows up yeah that's pretty rough yeah that's rough and so i said oh my god now i understand how all these fundamentalists scare people into into religion because if they talk fire and brimstone enough to people then they're going to cause these visions of hell and damnation to right, generate right, right. in their psyche and and so god I, I thought wow that's how they've been doing it for thousands of years and it works so they do it mm, program the unconscious basically right right so that's that was that experience now the good news is that uh, my daughter is now 44 and so i'll just uh share with you uh, something that happened uh, sure. oh, i actually have it here on my on my desktop it happens because i've been talking about it uh lately but um this is my friend tim holmes mm -hmm. and this this sculpture is uh is a sculpture that tim did and he did it as a commission uh, for an award that was given to this man, whose name is Elias uh, Shakur. And Elias Shakur was the Archbishop of Galilee. And um, when he was a young priest, um, and let me see if I can expand that. Can I expand it? I guess not. Um, when Shakur was a young priest, um, he had just gone into this church and the head of the congregation came up to him and said, we have to get rid of this vine outside, outside. And so he said, let me see. And they went outside and he says, isn't it lovely? It's a grapevine that was given by our neighbor. And the head of the congregation says, well, it's, it's a Muslim vine and it has to go. Uh, because the neighbor was Muslim. <laughs> and so Shakur says to him, bring me a bucket. So the guy runs and gets a bucket of water, uh, thinking that he's going to dig the vine up. And mm -hmm. so he has him pour the water over his hands. And he says, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy <laughs> Ghost. Amen. Now it's a Christian vine. And That's funny. <laughs> and, and it can stay. <laughs> so the, this this uh sculpture by my friend tim uh you know is about that moment mm -hmm. um but so anyway that sculpture um tim was permitted to make a series of 20 copies of it and so 
on my daughter's 44th birthday, exactly half of her life later, uh, I gave that as a gift to her mm, without poetic. Ever, I never, I never mentioned, I never mentioned the incident when she was sure. two, which I'm not even sure she remembers on this. Sure, sure, sure. Does she watch um, your your no, YouTube I channel? Don't, I don't no? think so. Okay, got it, got it. Um, but but she might see it one day because this sure. stuff is evergreen. <laughs> sure. Well, that's certainly certainly seeing Satan while driving down the road. Is, yeah, and so I, I just thought that was so symmetrical that I I could give her Tim's sculpture. <laughs> 22 years later. <laughs> exactly, half, right. a, half a lifetime later. Right. So, so, so I, I know the other, uh, I don't know, vision or experience you had with, I guess it'd be possession of an archetype, you said you were possessed by the anima for yeah. a period of eight months. What right. was that like in terms? What was the context of that? And then what was that like in terms of well, your subjective experience? Again, it came up. It came up from something that I found fairly traumatic, which was um, by that time I was already um, retired from the Marine Corps. I, I retired as a lieutenant colonel. Um, and um, and so when Gulf War One ended, um, Norman Schwarzkopf wanted to run this parade in Washington D.C. His war parade, and I don't think we should aggrandize the military. I've, I've been a military in the military my whole life. My father was a naval officer, and I'm a Marine and. And uh, I still maintain my commission. I still have an ID card. And so, but it's always been a value of ours that we shouldn't aggrandize the military that, um, you know, nobody really wants to fight a war, but we have to know how. And so, because somebody else might want to take over our country, right? <laughs> but it doesn't mean we want to fight a war. And if we aggrandize the military, um, you know, the way many dictators do, then, you know, it makes it seem like we want to be belligerents. And so I was very angry uh, that day, the day of that uh, war parade. And I was living on Capitol Hill at the time. So I decided to take a walk around the Capitol and, um, figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And uh, what I came up with at the time was um, I want to be a writer. Maybe I want to write a novel. And then over the next few months, I, um, and uh, so I learned from an article from um, Michael Crichton in the, in the Wall Street Journal He's the author of Jurassic Park. And he was asked, uh, what do you do to write a novel? And uh, the answer was, uh, you ask a question and then answer it. So obviously, mm. Jurassic Park, Park is question. What would happen what, if, if yeah, dinosaurs came to life? Yeah, right, yeah. right, right, exactly. And so um, what came to my mind over the next few months was question that I had asked my father when I was 15 and we were living in Japan and we had a, a housekeeper who was uh, she's probably 23 years old at the time 
and she was living with us. We had a very small room and she could live in there. And then she helped my mother cook and wash dishes and that sort of thing. And um, so one Saturday I asked my father, you know, why is Michiko-san here? And he said, well, um, in Japan, uh, women come to Tokyo to earn their dowry. Uh, we weren't living in Tokyo, but they come to civilization uh, from the farms to earn their dowry and then they go back. And so when you say earn their dowry, that means well, they they uh, in countries where a dowry is required, um, the the bride's family has to pay money to the groom's right. family. Right, right, okay. Oh, okay. And, you know, you see that even in, if you see uh, Shakespeare in Love, the movie sure. Shakespeare yeah. in Love. Bride's family pays the... Yeah, pay, you know, buys the, <laughs> buys the son-in-law the son with yes. the dowry, right? right? And so these farm girls who are quite poor ha would have to come to Tokyo. And of course, so when I was 15, I just let that question sit but it worked in my unconscious for 33 years, okay? And so in 1993, um, or actually late 1992, uh, a Jungian analyst named uh, Clarissa Pincola Estes wrote a book entitled Women Who Run With the Wolves. And it was a blowout bestseller for a couple of years. And I can actually show it to you because I always keep it in arm's reach, but, um, by that, by that time, by 93, I'd already been, been into Jungian stuff for six years. And so I knew that artistic work, if it's going to be successful, needs to be archetypal. In other words, you know, Dick and Jane go up the hill isn't really archetypal, right? right. <laughs> but, but um, you know, the, the great paintings of Caravaggio, let's say, or... Michelangelo, um, those people did archetypal work. And so they're the great masters. Mm -hmm. And so that's true in, in all art, but, you know, it's certainly in writing and in painting and so on. And so I knew I wanted to write a novel. I had thought of this question about what if a girl like Michiko-san, but I called her Mako in my novel, what if she comes to Tokyo to earn her dowry, what would that be like? And she becomes the first woman prime minister of Japan. What, was the, what would be the evolution of that over a lifetime? And so I had gone back to Japan 16 years after I finished high school um, to start this company over there. And during that five-year period, I had the full Monty of Japanese business life, okay? What all the experiences that anybody would have. Um, and, uh, and that includes nightclubs and, and geisha bars and all that sure. stuff, right? And so I had learned quite a lot about the way Japanese society works. And also during that five-year period, I realized that Oh my God, after 9 p.m. on, on um, Japanese TV, it's very 
common to see a detective show in which a woman uh, gets almost raped or raped and her top gets torn off so that her breasts are visible, um, which probably we don't wouldn't have here in the US on normal broadcast TV. Right, unless it's SVU Law and Order or something. Right, and but in in Japan that was very common. And after midnight, the late night shows would have nude women on on them, you know, full frontal nudity. And this is back in the eighties, the early eighties, and and I presume it hasn't changed a lot since then. Uh, but um, so I mean that that's just a a snapshot of the types of things I had run into when I was there on business. And so I pick up Estes's book and um, I started, well, my mother gave it to my wife for Christmas. And so I picked it up on like the day after Christmas, 1992. And I started to read it and I said to my wife, you can't have it. <laughs> and I read it cover to cover nice, like, like two days. <laughs> but in that book, there's a, there's a story, uh, which is chapter three, um, called Vasilisa the Wise. And it's about how women um, gain their intuition faculty, how, how that happens. Uh, archetypally. And after that story, there's about a 40 page dissertation by Estes, in which she talks about the nine steps that women go through, um, that causes them to become quite intuitive. Um, and it sort of amounts to woman's individuation. Mm. Okay. And so I said, wow, okay, I want to write this novel about this farm girl from age 15 to age 75. And now I have a template. Um, sure. What are some <laughs> of those steps? Well, I mean, step, I don't know if I remember them all, but uh, step one is like leaving the good mother behind. So you, you have to, you know, leave your mother somehow. Okay. And of course, in parental raising, child raising. <laughs> it's the stories of young girls, early teenage girls fighting with their mothers. Though that's a classic story. Yeah, I hear right? that's common. Right. And, and so, but that's a step that they have to go through where they separate themselves from their mother's sure. ideas, right? And, and so it's a normal, it's like, uh, you know, um, when, a, when you have a small baby, um, when they're about two and a half or three, they'll say no. And to refuse to do something you want them to do. And that is when their ego is starting to develop. Okay, that's a that's a sign that right. the ego is starting to develop. Because they have their own wants and goals and drives. Right, right. And so, anyway, there are these nine steps. I recommend the book to you. <laughs> You'll learn a lot. Sure. <laughs> every, sure. Man, every man should read that book. <laughs> Women who run with the wolves, but uh, particularly that 
chapter and and that 40 page dissertation which you know they probably still have it in the bookstore so you could go sit in the in Barnes and Noble and read that 40 pages and <laughs> you'd learn a lot <laughs> but anyway I said okay so I'm going to take my heroine through that nine steps now this is all very logos oriented right I that was just very logical how I was going to do sure that. structure outline all that yeah right and so then uh, I started to write it and then boom within about two days um Mako who's the who's the heroine in my story uh started to wake me up every morning at six o'clock and make me come to my computer and I would sit down and almost in the dark I turned my my um monitor down almost the lowest possible level and I put my hands on the keyboard and this novel wrote itself okay I, it was like taking dictation almost and I don't I have no recollection of actually typing the novel what I have is a recollection of a vision of the movie going across in front of my eyes and so um I and so this was possession by the anima right because she wanted me to tell her story okay in other words once I got in my mind that I wanted to tell this story from 15 to 75, then it was it was an archetypal possession. And one of the things about an archetype is once it starts to play, it's like a jukebox. Once you start to play that record, it doesn't stop until it's done. Okay. Interesting. And so an example where it's never done is motherhood. Okay. If a woman has a baby, then she's a mother, okay? And she's a mother for the rest of her life. And that the mother archetype will play out through her no matter what else happens. Once she's a mother, sure. you know, up until the time she's a mother, fine, she might be a tomboy or whatever. But once she's a mother, boom, she's a mother. And, and you can never stop that archetype from playing. Okay. Is the same true with like a father? Is the father archetype? Is it as strong or is it? Uh, probably not as strong because men are not as closely involved with the upbringing sure. of the child. But sure. but obviously the father archetype is important, and Jordan Peterson is fulfilling that role for uh, lots millions of men, uh, obviously. Mm -hmm. So um, so anyway. Um, this archetype that was playing through Mako's story kicked off and once it kicked off I couldn't stop it okay I, it had to play and it, and I had to do this so every day at six about six in the morning I would have a vision of this 15 year old Japanese girl in kimono coming over and waking me up Literally this is when you me. were, is, was this a dream or was this after you'd waken up the vision came? Uh, sort of both. Okay, sure. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I can't say whether I was asleep or awake. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. But anyway, I was getting up no matter what, I had to do it. And then I would go into my study and I'd turn on my computer monitor very low, put my hands on the keyboard. And every day I wrote 500 to 1,000 words. 
of some part of that story. And once I had written, you know, that segment, then I was released for the rest of the day. Mm. Okay, then I could go to for the rest of the day. But for that eight month period, I had to do it every day. And if I didn't do it every day, I'd be in trouble. Okay. And so it had to come through. Now, I mean, you, what do you mean you'd be in trouble? Uh, my animal would trip me up somehow. Okay. Interesting. And, um, and so I surmise that, uh, you know, archetypal stories that have come out of great novelists are like that. And when novelists say they have writer's block, it's because they can't get back to that space to write um and i know how to drop into that space anytime i want to and i often I, i'm sort of always in it now but um <clears throat> but you know some a lot of writers especially in the mid mid 20th century would become alcoholics or drug addicts because they would be trying to get back into that space artificially and sure. they couldn't do it and mm. the and the alcohol or drugs took over and killed them basically right right, right. and so people like arthur miller is a good example wasn't um, hemingway a pretty hemingway, heavy alcoholic hemingway was an example he yeah. shot himself when he was 63 mm. and um and so you know there there are many many cases of that but it it's just not understanding how that functionality works and you know their careers were dependent upon it mine wasn't right and so i wrote this story and parts of it are quite pornographic okay but all of it is true <laughs> and and so um so i was in the middle of my business career it was 1993 and my wife is, is a very wise woman, and she said that she would not read my story. And she's had a, she had a lot of experience in Japan. Um, and, and so she knew what some of the things I would be writing about. And she said she didn't want to read it until I'd written the whole book and shown it to nine other or 10 other women. Once I, once I had 10 other women read it, then she would read it. All clear. Interesting. Right. Sure. And so fortunately, at that time, I was working in, a, in an industry of women, so I didn't have any trouble finding women <laughs> who wanted to read the book. Nice. And, and the reaction I got, I, I was very surprised because I had thought that the pornography would turn them off. You know, I, I say it's an erotic novel when I'm in polite com company, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, you know, it's something like Fanny Hill or uh, what Anne Rice wrote in The Taking of Sleeping Beauty or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so I was in the middle of my business career, which involved traveling to some very conservative countries, Saudi Arabia and India. And uh, so I didn't want to get known for having written this novel. And so I, uh, I put it in my drawer for um, 21 years and never did anything with it. But I promised myself when I was 70, I would publish it. And actually I jumped the gun a little bit, but um, 
I did publish it uh, on Kindle in uh, 2014. But the what gave me confidence to do it was keeping in mind this was visioning and and you know well certainly a lot of visioning because I was visioning the novel itself. Um, but in 2009, Dr. Young's Red Book came out. And so that was 16 years after I'd actually written my novel. And I looked at his Red Book and I said, oh my God, well, if this could happen to the most famous psychiatrist, psychologist of the 20th century, and he was okay, then maybe I'm okay too. Sure, <laughs> right. But it still took me another five years before I brought myself around to actually putting it out where people could get it. And, um, and now I, now it's, it's on, um, it's on Amazon in Kindle form. And uh, it's, it's also in uh, my drop boxes for the groups that I run. So sure. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, I, and it's free there. So right. Yes, I, it's, I, uh, t uh, was it three years ago, four years ago now? I, are you familiar with Game of Thrones? Yeah, sure. Have you, shown, have you seen it all? No. Okay. The, it's well known for the last season being awful. Like it uh -huh. was a great show. And then the last season is just absolute garbage. Right. And so I've always been interested in, in fiction and stuff. And I actually started writing uh, my own kind of fiction novel. that's in that same kind of genre. And I've had that idea of, I, I want to publish it when I'm 60 or 70. I want, I want it to be sort of a, an archetypal journal, you know, as I learn through life, I can, you know, if I'm going to write the wise King character, well, I, at 24, I probably don't know enough to, to, to write that out yet, but yeah. kind of write it in, in segments and stuff. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, uh, you, one way to do it is to learn the Tarot, which I teach every Monday night. And the Tarot really has the high points of the archetypal journey. In right. It, that's something in it. that's something I actually wanted to ask you. So tarot cards yeah. to the average person, at least it, it, in my circles, would sound like this is crazy. This is what you're it's like palm reading or, you know, right. whatever. It, other it, it's like what 13 year old girls do. Right, 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 right. 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 But I but I've and I've, I've seen some of your stuff on it. But I mean, could you kind of go into what the actual psychological value of it? It's a projection of archetypes, right? It's precisely. I, well, let, let's put it like this. The major arcana, which is the first 22 cards, are, um, which includes the zero card, which is the fool, and the 21 card, which is the world, but it means fully individuated person. Um, they, um, they cover the main experiences of life, the archetypal experiences of life. And so um, uh, if, you know, I just talk you through the first three or four here. So the fool is the zero card and that's all of us when we, um, when we start something new, right? You know, we don't know, we're stepping off a cliff. The, the, um, the fool is stepping off a cliff and um, and so if you if you read about what the fool means, then you start to see yourself in it, right? 
And then the number one card is the magician. So the magician is, um, he's having his, holding his hand up to the sky and his other hand is pointed down to the earth. And on the table in front of him, he has four things. He has a, a sword, a, um, a wand or a stave, uh, a cup and a coin, okay, which is the four suits of the tarot, which also happen to be the four functions of Jungian psychology, mm -hmm. okay? Right, and, for like the Myers-Briggs personality test, right? Right, the... and so, so the point is, from here, from this moment, Paul, when you're, I don't know what you're going to do after you hang up from this call, but you have, you are the magician of your own life. And so you will pick of all the choices of things you can do, you will pick something to do, okay? And it will be from one of these four functions, okay? It will be either something creative, which is the wands, uh, something um, discerning, which is thinking, um, and the wands are creative as intuition, right? In terms mm -hmm. of the Myers-Briggs type indicator. Um, or it will be something that feeds, feeds something emotional, like um, getting a present for a girlfriend or something like that, you sure. know? And, and, the, and the fourth thing is it could be coins. So, so it could have to do with accumulation of physical objects in your life whatever that may mean um and that's the sensing side so if i take it in terms of how we learn it in the marine corps where um you know i i studied this in five senior schools in the marine corps you know the naval war college the national war college uh, the command and staff college Center for Creative Leadership, all of them taught us the Myers-Briggs and why, because um, you know, for a mission, for a military mission, you need these four functions, okay, to uh, act properly and to uh, be discerning. And most military, senior military officers are STJ, which means they're sensing, thinking, and judging. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You probably don't have many super yeah. creative artists in high right. command. But, but those guys get max out at two stars. The guys that make three and four stars, people like Colin Powell, are intuitive. Okay, so here's how it works. I'm quite intuitive. I'm way out on the intuitive scale. So you know, I, I see three trees and I assume there's a forest, but if I show you a, a thousand trees and you're a sensing person, you won't, you won't necessarily believe there's a forest. Okay. A thousand so, individual trees. Right. Uh, so, so the point is in a military operation, you need sensing people to get all the facts. Okay all the physical facts that are in the world that relate to your mission, then you need an intuitive person to um, conjure how those facts come together, bring those facts together and to envision how this 
mission should play out and you know which units should do what and that sort of thing. And then you need uh, thinking people to um, to work out the details of, of the mission to very logically work out what you're going to do and and we have we have very rational ways of doing that in the military and um and then you need feeling people to tell you well if you achieve this if you do it successfully this is what the outcome is going to be okay and this is this is what it's going to mean for yourself your country you know this war whatever it is um this is what the outcome is going to be and how it's going to be uh seen by people in the future let's say sure so so the does i mean for, i don't know if it's on a mission by mission basis or you know if you're assembling a battalion or something does the military actually put stock in we know we have these we've got this many people who are sensing thinking we have this many people who are intuitive or not are they actually measuring that like at the myers-briggs level or is it more yes. like general yeah interesting wow okay yeah so as i said i went to five senior schools and i was a reserve officer for most of my career uh, for 20 years out of 23 i was a reserve officer but um but when you're a reservist they'll send you for two weeks active duty so i went to these five senior schools in the military and um, out of the 10 days, 10 work days that they have you in your two weeks of active duty, out of the 10 work days, they take one full day. So 10% of the time they have you to teach you the Myers-Briggs Wow! at all these senior schools. So that's how important it is. Sure. Um, and uh, so, yes, they do. And, and you know, the... The people we get ahead that get ahead in the military mostly are uh, sensing thinkers, of course. Right, because okay? they judge, can operate within and that. judges. You know, judges who can make a decision very quickly, easily. Because right. there's a right. fixed set of rules, and it's algorithmic to follow. So the people who are good at following and seeing the algorithm and just playing right. it through. Okay, but but what would happen? People would come to me and say, sir, uh, please tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll go do it, you know? Uh, and you say, okay, Captain, I want you to take your destroyer over that, over that horizon and kill that son of a bitch and report back. And he says, aye, aye, sir, and he goes away and he comes back. But, um, but those are, those, but what they would say to me is, Tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it, but don't make me deal with the politics. Okay. Don't right. Make me right. Okay. And the problem is politics is all about intuition and mm. feeling. Okay. Context. How does this play into the bigger picture? Right. Versus, right. 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 And so um, even, you know, I'm still reading Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Uh, right here, this is T.E. Lawrence's book. He's uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, he says right at the beginning of it, um, I was just reading it a few minutes ago, as a matter of fact, but he says, you know, 
for the for the officers it wasn't bad because we could see the future but for um for the enlisted men they they can't see the future they they don't have the intuition to project what it's going to mean they just have to follow orders and you give them the orders and they do it but the officers are trained well enough so that they see all sides of the right. of the issue um and so anyway what was the question we got started on we were relating this back to tarot cards right okay so so with the magician uh uh card number one at every moment of your life you are the magician and you have all the assets to do to magically do whatever it is you're going to do in your life and um there's one young quote which I have done in calligraphy. I have a heap of books next to me here. I buried this, but I'll I'll share it with you. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what I'll put it up on the screen because I think I have it easily here. Um, just have to. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, Okay, so I'll just read it off of this. Uh, this is called the eternal moment, but this, this applies now to the, the moment of the magician. And this is every moment of your life. And so here's what it says. The great thing is now and here, this is the eternal moment. And if you do not realize it, you have missed the best part of life. You have missed the realization that you were once the carrier of life contained between the poles of an unimaginable future and an unimaginably remote past. Millions of years and untold millions of ancestors have worked up to this moment, and you are the fulfillment of this eternal moment. Um, one should take each moment as the eternal moment, as if nothing were ever going to change, not anticipating a faraway future, for the future always grows out of that which is. You must live life in such a spirit that you make in every moment the best of the possibilities. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that hits on being present. That yeah, I, like Alan Watts, I know is big into that. Like the right. present is where. Life happens. There is no tomorrow. Tomorrow's a concept. Right. And so, so the point of the number one card in the tarot is simply that, that in every moment of your life, you are the magician and you have the choice of which tool that's on your table in the tarot card, which tool to pick up and use to forward, take your life forward. You're the right. magician. And so then the number two card is the high priestess. And the high priestess is um, this very mysterious woman. Right? <laughs> and and um, I was listening to Paul Fender Clay the other day, and he was talking about pornography. And he said that, that um, yeah, well, men that use pornography without having a woman in their life 
you know, in a sense, they, they're sensible because there's nothing more terrifying than an actual woman. <laughs> <laughs> Truth and wisdom there. Right. And mm. so, so the number two card is the high priestess. And she's the anima architect. The anima. Right? Yep, mm. sure. And she's, she's this mystery. And, and, uh, if you're a man, you know, you're never going to understand this mystery. There's no way. Um, and the best you can do is, is learn to live with it. I, I have a cup that I was using this morning, which says, if a man is in the speaks in the desert and no woman hears him, is he still wrong? And the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> And the reason is because if you think about the yin yang and masculine feminine, mm -hmm. you're only ever ever half of that um, of that uh, mandala. You know, as a man, you're all, the masculine only has half of it, and so no matter what you say, the woman in your life, the fe the feminine in your life, whatever that is, it doesn't have to be by gender a, a woman, but uh, whatever the feminine is in your life is going to scream at you immediately. Right. It's the other half. Or tell you what's wrong with what you're thinking. <laughs> sure. So anyway, um, right. so that's, uh, so the third, the third card is uh, the Empress, which is mother. And, um, and so the Empress is pregnant in the, in the most basic tarot decks, the, the Empress is pregnant. And the number four card is the emperor, uh, who is father and the father figure. Sure. And, and so what, so in terms of understanding your life and what you're facing, um, if you understand those 21 cards, you're going to understand really huge parts of your life okay and uh, the number five card is the hierophant who's a teacher but he's also telling you what the rules are and that sort of thing sure um, and so if you read about these things you start to understand oh, okay i now i understand what this archetype is all those archetypes are there hmm. okay so then um after the number 10 card well, let's, let's say you can get through a lot of things in a certain context. So, you know, uh, you know, if I was a Marine and um, I did that for 23 years and on January the 4th, 1990, I was walking across the parking lot at Marine Corps Base Quantico and I slipped on the ice and broke my leg. Marine Corps career over. <laughs> wait this action this happened or yeah yeah oh, definitely wow. happened sure. and uh it's been with me ever since mm. i in 2018 i had to have my ankle replaced as a matter of fact physically replaced mm. so i now have a a stainless steel ankle in my foot sure um but fortunately the surgeons have you know, save my foot, but I could have lost it that day um, because uh, 
when I first looked down at my foot after I'd fallen, um, it, my foot was not on my leg. It was literally pulled off of my leg. And, and um, so I could have had very serious vascular damage, mm. which would have been enough to have my leg amputated wow. below the knee. So, but that didn't happen. I, I, I've had a prosthesis ever since, and that had to be replaced in, in 2018. So 28 years later, um, but sure. so shit happens, you know, and, and, you know, you get fired or you discontinue your work and it's happened to me many times and it's why I'm here right now, because mm. when it happens, then you go on and do something else. And that's the point. You're always in the eternal moment. You're always in the role of the magician, and you always can find something to do with your life based on the assets that are in front of you. Right. And and if you understand that, you you know you do very well in life. But um, so just an example, the I think it's the fourteen card is the tower. Um, it might be the 16 card, I don't remember exactly, uh, but is the tower, and that's uh, a, a symbol of your world falling apart, and archetypally that happens to all of us, mm -hmm. and so we have to be prepared if it happens, and we, you know, you can go take your life, or you can, <laughs> you can be like trees you know they get a, a limb cut off because the telephone company wants to go through there with a power line or a telephone line right and so the tree just puts out another shoot and starts mm -hmm. growing another branch right right and so you have to be like that if you're going to live a long life really mm -hmm. and you know we we're now living five times as long as our ancestors at the time of Stonehenge, people were living to be about 20 on average. Mm. Uh, at the time my ancestors came to America, the average age was 40 in, in a lifetime. And uh, so now we're up to 75 or 76. And, you know, obviously some of us live quite a bit longer. Mm. So that, I'm just talking about the average, but... Um, but the reason is because we have these accidents under control and we have disease under control and so on. So right. it can keep going on. So you see that even though I'm at close to the average life expectancy of a human being, you know, I'm still pretty active and, and I can do a lot of things. Sure. Uh, right. You know. So, the archetype is still there yes right so i mean that i think we ought to stop on talking about the tarot but but that's why to pay attention to it now in terms of divination in tarot divination is a different thing okay what i've been talking about is studying the tarot to understand the archetypes that are there and the major arcana are the archetypes and the minor arcana are the typical things that would happen to you in a lifetime Okay. okay that's what it amounts to so if you understand the minor arcana when there are 56 of them um 
then then you basically have a heads up on anything that could happen to you in life. And, and so in terms of preparing for life, man, I would study the tarot because then nothing's going to surprise you, basically. <laughs> right? What's an example of a minor arcana? Uh, well, okay. Um, uh, I guess the... The seven, uh, the five of swords, let's say, which is after the battle, there's five swords lying there on the on the beach. And but there's one guy that's stealing the swords and stealing away with them. And and so, you know, even when the, it means even when the battle is over, you could still have another battle and you better, you know, gather your weapons up. Sure. <laughs> and, sure. Be prepared. Be prepared. Right. And, and so that would be an example. Um, you know, the aces of all the suits are, are, you know, the, the starting out in any field in terms of what you're doing. So in the, in the coins, it's starting to put together your, your uh, life savings or whatever it is mm -hmm. and and so the the king of coins is this miser who's who's guarding the all the money that he put together in a lifetime sure. okay but then if if you do that oh there's always the unexpected like uh the financial crash of 2008 so i was worth uh over a million dollars with my home and so on. And I lost everything. Um, and, and. All right. I know you took it to all the way to the Supreme court, right? Yep. Yep. I did. And, um, and I never got a hearing. Okay. I never got a hearing because if they'd given me a hearing, uh, they would, uh, they, would have had to open up the possibility of of lawsuits in every county in the united states because it's all fraudulent it's all fraudulent mm, right oh yeah and, and so and the mortgage industry is horrific and you just have to ho hope that nothing happens uh, because if it does uh, lots of people get screwed and right and, in that case, 10 million families lost their homes. And it shouldn't have happened. If people weren't greedy on Wall Street, it wouldn't have happened, but it did happen. So, mm -hmm. but let's let's go on from that and talk about uh, Jordan Peterson. Yes, I was just gonna say. My favorite pinata, so. <laughs> right. Well, so like I said, I, you know, I've listened to a lot of your stuff and I understand sort of your basic critiques. Um, you talk about there's a difference between lo logos and arrows. You say Jordan Peterson's a logos guy, so he's more focused on order or that which is structure. Yeah. Structure, right? Now, I think, from my understanding, you know, he talks about order versus chaos, and I would say far more central to his claims about order or logos are that meaning. And that the proper path forward exists in the balance between order and chaos. That there's a there's a path chaos is not necessarily bad. He talks about chaos is both danger and opportunity, 
and order is, you know, safety and stagnation. So pathological order is totalitarianism and pathological chaos is, you know, revolution and, and everything falling apart. Right. So when you talk about logos versus eros, well, it seems to me that that maps directly on to order versus chaos. Well, you're right, except it's not order. It's not logos against chaos. Um, because in the Eros is both chaos and also all of our lives. And so the Logos provides us with structure in which we live and we learn how to use things. So if you look around your room right now and you've got a guitar there, you've got a, mm -hmm. a picture on the wall, right. you're sitting in a nice leather chair and so on, all those things aren't possible without logos so we need logos 100 percent because logos uh is the rational rationality it's putting together the the plans to build those things each one of them in a special way uh, but you know you can have the instructions for building a guitar and still not be able to play it right, right? and and so everything in our life that is a physical thing and not a living person is logos okay and it's or it's the result of of logos uh and we need it to be perfect 100 percent. you wouldn't have that guitar if you didn't think that was a guitar that you wanted to have in your life right mm -hmm. and you wouldn't have that picture on the wall if it, if that wasn't a picture that you liked i mean mm -hmm. i can't really spaceman drinking a beer on the moon yeah yeah okay i can't really see really what captures it is. my spirit yeah yeah, right. yeah okay so 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 it captures your spirit but what is your spirit that's the question right sure. and and so the point is all that stuff is logos and so we need logos 100%. And I agree, I agree with Jordan 100% on that. But um, the other side of the equation is life itself. Okay. And, and so life is chaotic. Shit happens, man. Mm. <laughs> and, and 2020 uh, was a uh, reminder of that in case anyone forgot. Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, so logos helps us make heiser tales of it because we can stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and um and be okay right but you know it's like the the primate falling out of the tree um you know the 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 logos in the dna taught over a billion years primates to wake up and not fall out of the tree to maintain their balance in the tree so sure. they wouldn't fall down and be eaten um and so that's that's uh that's in the dna uh but but the waking up and the catching the branch that's that's life man sure that's, right that's, that's the subjective actual experience right and so so that's where I differ from Jordan because he thinks that logos is opposite chaos only. And I say, no, logos is opposite logos eros, which includes both chaos and everything about your life. Okay. Sure. I guess, cause I don't, I guess I don't fully understand that distinction because 
Well, I guess what what is so what are the consequences of to the degree that you think he's wrong? Then what what then does he say or prescribe that you think is in error? Well, okay, um, you know, make a make a list of the features that you'd like to have in your spouse. Are you married? I'm not. No. Okay, so not make yet. a list of all the things that you'd like your spouse to be. Okay, and and then find a woman that meets that exactly. I can tell you it's a terrifying experience. Yeah, that sounds okay. difficult. <laughs> you can hear my I, yeah, I was going to say, I heard I some extra audio say, there. And then hold on. <laughs> so your chances, of, uh, your chances of logosing out the what you want in a wife and getting that are zilch and nil. Sure. Right. Yes. And I and I, I think Jordan Peterson would agree. Oh, surely he would. OK. And, you know, it's not so much that I think he would disagree with me. I don't think he disagrees with me. Um, but but by the same token, he's not a union. OK, he's not. Right. A, he not specifically a, says a union would say this. He would he'll provide the union perspective when it's when it's yeah, fit. And, and sometimes what he says is fine and sometimes it's a little sketchy but okay. like, i mean when 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 jordan peterson says that the most the most frightening book he ever read is ion uh, which is researches into the phenomenology of the self by carl jung right um to him that's the scariest book in the world um but to me, it it just says the way life is. Okay, so my favorite, uh, go look this up. Yeah, if you're if you're in my Dropbox, you can uh, you can get all the collected works on electronic form on my Dropbox. So, sure. um, so if you're not on it, just let me know and I'll put you in the Dropbox, and cool. then you can get the collected works. So go to volume uh, nine two it's nine small ii of the collected works and that's ion and in there go to paragraph 63 and that that clearly sums up what we're talking about because um and he sums it up in one sentence i, I mean when i when i read it finally i I should read it to you since sure. I have it right here, but I have to reach for it. No worries. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, paragraph 63. It has it all in, in sort of one sentence. And and this is this is where I separate from Jordan. Okay, so he's talking about three archetypes. He says the shadow, the syzygy, and the self are psychic factors of which an adequate picture can be formed only on the basis of a fairly thorough experience of them. Um, another, it's like describing the wife you want and, and putting that together <laughs> in one a wish list. Yeah, right. like a Build-A-Bear. Yeah, that doesn't right, seem like it yeah. work. Okay, so just as these concepts arose, um, can you save the printing until after we're done? <laughs> I was going to say, I think I hear it sounds like a fax printer or 
yeah. sun coming out. Um, so um, just as these concepts arose out of an experience of reality, so they can be elucidated only by further experience. Philosophical criticism, which is all logos, rationality, philosophical criticism will find everything to object to in them unless it begins by recognizing that they are concerned with facts and that the concept is simply an abbreviated description or definition of these facts. So then here's, here's the kick, kicker. Such criticism has a, as little effect on the object as zoological criticism on the duck-billed platypus. It is not the concept that matters. The concept is only a word, a counter, and it has meaning and use only because it stands for a certain sum of experience. Mm. Okay, and and so that's that's the distinction there. That um, logos is about physical facts, and eros is about experience. Okay, so you know, you better have an experience, an experience of a woman after you think she meets all your, all your characteristics. Yeah, right. You better have an experience with her of right. some sort, or you might choose poorly. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it's, otherwise it's back to the porn, like Paul Vanderclay said, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I guess, so, well, okay, let, let, let me pose this to you, because this is what Jordan Peterson's biggest criticism of Jung is and I'd like to hear your thoughts he talks about well and there's kind of two parts to it he talks about how Jungian psychology is a and he you know he's operating from a clinical setting Jungian psychology works for people who are very high in openness and who are more intuitive like I'd say you and I and I think that's why we gravitate towards it gravitate mm -hmm. towards that but for other people a more strictly behaviorist approach works and so I guess, I guess I, there's two, well, we can start with this one because I can bring the other one up later. But I guess the question is, do you think Jungianism and the philosophy that Jung espouses is, obviously it encompasses total, you know, a lot of universal truths, but I mean, do you think it's, do you think that Jung is like, is the person who has, who has the firmest grasp on the truth about life and reality, the, the, he provides the closest approximation for everybody, or do no. you think that perhaps it fits no, certain I, personality types? Okay, so um, I'm not necessarily going to go there, but let's talk first about Jordan. Jordan is a clinical psychologist, okay, and so he's faced all kinds of issues with people clinically, and um, I read, I readily acknowledge that you know, there's some things that can be addressed clinically um, using other psychological approaches. And, right. and uh, a Jungian approach is not necessarily the end-all be-all because it takes a long time um, usually sure. to dig down into the depths of a of another human being well, and it's and it's abstract and literary often and like i have friends who like jordan peterson for the practical psychology and you know business advice so to speak not sure. business advice okay. but the very practical but, elements but, but that's um, very different from jordan is now a case in point though about um how 
all that can go off the rails okay because he what did what did he do he got himself drug addicted and it's not because he was a bad man it wasn't um you know he certainly knows what drugs can do and so on and um i think he you know probably did it on the advice of somebody else but not but he discounted um the the addictive characteristics of right. the drug Physical he was dependency. taking yeah such that that it almost killed him okay and and so um you know there there's nothing that's an end-all be-all and um you know so if we talk i i look i have i'm not a mental health professional i've never taught taken a course in psychology in my life and so i'm so everything that i say is from my hip pocket but it's based on 34 years of studying young right and so i but i have no doubt in my own mind that um that there are things that can be resolved in a superficial area or way and um without the need for going into dreams and Jungian ideas. Right, precisely. Sure. However, um, you know, somebody that I respect a lot said to me, well, Jordan Peterson is uh, shallow and one-sided. And what they mean by that is that his psychology, his approach to psychology uh, doesn't go to depth um, in the sense that Jung does. And it, um, it is entirely on the Logos side. He doesn't go to the Eros side. You know, he, he calls himself, I'm the savior of the Logos. Sure. Um, and again, I, and again I, I just have trouble with that distinction because he, he specifically talks about the need for chaos and the need for avoid stagnation. If you sit in your room all day, that's a pathology of order. You need to get out. You need to take in fear. And to right. me, that seems like, Okay. More arrows. Right? Yeah, he's trying to. You're right. He's trying to save it, say it, but he's he's um, he's pushing pussyfooting around the issues of religion and spirituality, uh, and so he can't take a step over um, to say he believes in God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now. Yeah, a lot of people hate him for that. He's weaseling right. around the question and all that. Yeah. Right, and, and he really gets squirrely when that question comes up. Do you believe right. in God? And, um, you know, the point is the point that Dr. Jung made uh, when he said in response to that question, I have no need to believe, I know. Right. And, and when he said that, I said, oh, I too know. Okay. And so what is it I know? And it took me 10 years to work it out and to get it into some sort of logical order, some rational orders, so that now I know. Um, but I already knew it the first time I heard Jung that, that that's where I was. Okay. But Jordan hasn't gotten there yet. And so 
I think his reservation is, uh, and it's a fair enough one, which is that as, as Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. Well, that's what the scientific method did to the God of the 16th century. Right. And, and so, yes, that God is dead. Um, but that doesn't mean that God is dead. That means the God as presented to Western civilization for 2000 years, that conception of God, that, that idea of God is dead. Right. Okay. Uh, and it's dead because, you know, every, every myth in, in the Bible, uh, you can, um, you can deny. Yeah. Rationally uh, dispel. So, well, Jesus yeah. didn't literally feed 5,000 people. It's like, there's more there than just the actual. Yeah. I mean, the, the one I, I like to talk about, I, I'm sure he did, but I, I'm sure that happened, but what it meant is something different for, from the way it's presented. Mm. So, for example, you have 5,000 people at the Sermon on the Mount, and you have um, seven fishes and five loaves or whatever it is, and you feed off 5,000. Well, that isn't what he did. What he did was say, hey, everybody's got a picnic with them and you've got food with you please share it with your with your neighbors so right it's a moral every, injunction not a right, recounting right, of a literal exactly right and, and another example is lazarus uh his coming from the dead so he comes to the home of mary and martha and um everybody's wailing because his friend lazarus was dead and and Christ goes in with Mary and Martha, and he comes out, and they swear that Lazarus lives. Okay, now, did Lazarus walk out of that building? Probably not. Okay, but um, what I can tell you from losing loved ones is that uh, when, when they physically die, uh, nothing changes. Okay. In other words, um, they still live here in your heart. Um, they may not be physically here anymore, but you have all the, all your memories of them and, and, and their imprint on your psyche and the imprint on it. They've changed how you behave and that's part of right, your right. identity. And so, and so that part of them still lives and, so what I'm sure of is that Lazarus went in and he said to the two women, just uh, examine your heart. Lazarus isn't dead. He's, mm. um, you know, this corpse here, that's not Lazarus. La Lazarus isn't there anymore. Lazarus is here in your heart right. now. Right. And I think that the, the Bible is a series of metaphors, sort right. of like that, that implies that knowledge. And I think to the degree that you were saying, like Jordan Peterson has a problem with, well, do I believe in God? It's like, well, what does it mean to take that leap of, well, you and, know, and these are so, metaphors versus now these are. So Jordan is a rationalist who can't say that the God that Nietzsche declared dead is alive. Okay, fair enough. 
you know that that's the you know the way I say it is Nietzsche declared God dead. Jung came along in the next generation and showed where God lives, and um, found the living God where He lives and how He goes about doing the work of the Godhead. Okay, and I don't know if you've looked at it, but there's I did a lecture on this about eighteen months ago called uh, Finding the Living God. And uh, so I would recommend that to your followers also, um, because, um, you know, God isn't out there. He's not a puppet master. I mean, Jordan likes, likes to talk about Pinocchio and the puppet master, right, as, as his metaphor. But God is not a puppet master, okay? If you're going to get a touch, touchdown in a football game, it's not because God is going to reach reach sure. down and push you across the goal. Right. Line. That, I don't think that's his implication in those in that metaphor ever. His, his point is, in in order to be free of the strings of culture and other people pointing on you, you have to embody, you know, you have to integrate your conscience. You have to, I think, so in, in your language is like bring arrows so, into your life. Yeah, like bring so, chaos. Don't be a well, puppet. no, understand that your life is in chaos. You're, mm. You you live in the arrows, and some of it is chaotic to the extent that you have no control over it, which is the implication of chaos. Mm -hmm. But most of it is in your control because we have learned. We've been to school. We know how to handle the things that could cause our life to be chaotic. Right, right. And we exist in a culture that keeps a lot of it at bay, right. which which this was this was the second thing I wanted to, to ask you. Mm -hmm. Peterson's biggest criticism of Jung specifically is that, and he talks about it in his new book, is that Jung and Freud and the psychoanalysts in general did not take into account the degree to which your internal organization of your psyche, your sanity is dependent upon a functional social system. He says that Jung and Freud and the psychoanalysts believed that if you just got your internal psychic world together, you would ultimately, that would be the key to individuation. And Peterson's point is, well, that you only exist as a organized psyche if the social structure you inhabit is at least functional, because you can't, you can't be sane in a, in a, in a, um, you know, in a yeah, chaotic world. I think it's a distinction without a difference. I mean, as I've said, uh, Jordan Peterson, about 99.5% of the time, I agree with him. Okay. Um, I don't happen to agree with him about his religious formulation, not because he can't say, I believe in God, um, because I think when he's saying that, he's he's thinking, I have to believe in that God, mm. that God that we've been sold for sure, the last right, 2,000 right, right, right. years. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm with him on that. I can't believe in that God either. And, and neither have, has Western humanity been able to believe it for, um, you know, at least 500 years, uh, at least the rational side of Western humanity. Right. Okay. Uh, and that God entirely fell apart um, in our in our psyche, but that doesn't mean that that 
some sort of religion isn't important, some sort of spiritual truth isn't important. Sure. And, and so, you know, you, in my estimation, we each have to make, uh, we each create our own God. In other words, uh, God didn't make us in his image. We make him in our image. Right. And. Well, and I, so, I, I think that comes, I think that comes to bear <clears throat> and specifically, you know, in the last few decades, this is a point that others have brought up is like, you know, we, we, we cut out that sort of religious substructure. We cut out these myths going back to the very beginning. When I asked you the question about, Right. You know, people having panic attacks and stuff because that <clears throat> the religious language they would use to describe it is now gone. Right. So then people turn to their own. They don't even know their religions. They follow things without like politics, I think, is becoming sort of a lot of people's major religion, especially. Right. And I think it's well, now it's certainly both. It's on the both the right and the left in that mm-hmm. people on the right get possessed <clears throat> by the archetype of the wise king, our country is beautiful, make America great. And, you know, we have this country that needs to be protected. And then on the left, it's the opposite. It's our country is purely evil. We need to destroy it. And it's like, people are being possessed by two different archetypes and that serves as their religious religion. And then they operate in those contexts and in their day-to-day right. lives, they'll, they'll, and, and they'll both- attack their friends and family based on this religious idea rather than keep right. that as a separate that, that's thing the, that's the devil's trick right and and from my perspective having served my whole life around the armed forces is that at, that america is yes we're flawed but we're way better than anybody else right right and what's the Churchill in, quote it's like Capitalism or what or Western democracy is the worst government except for all the other ones or something right. like that. Right. And and uh, Americans always get the right answer after trying everything else. Sure. Right, right. <laughs> right. Right. And and so um, you know, the our diversity is our strength and our debate is our strength. It's a it's a process like tempering steel where you know, and, and when you're tempering steel, you're pounding all the all the impurities out of the steel. You heat it up, get it as hot as you can, pound the crap out of it, and the impurities come out. And the more you do that, the tougher the steel becomes until you have a Japanese katana. And and uh, that's that's the hardest steel on earth. Um, and um, <coughs> And so our country is like that. We, we make, you know, gargantuan mistakes, but um, we learn from our mistakes and move on. And, you know, and it's not something that you can rational out. You can't, right. you can't say, oh, the guys at, on January 6th were wrong. It, it's not like they were wrong. It, it's like... Um, you know, they they got a certain idea in their heads, and unfortunately, some of them are going to suffer the consequences of, of the impurity in those ideas. Right. They thought they were protecting the country. They thought they were saving. <clears throat> they, they, they were the patriots. Right. And, and uh, you know, the rest of us are going to say, no, <laughs> you know, 
that isn't the way it works mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and and you know um and they didn't really know what they wanted i mean they got into the chambers of congress and they didn't know what to do they were at at a total loss what to do um and yeah yeah they get it yeah because they were just playing out a a game right or... and they they saw a scenario and they, and right. they thought uh the president had their back and he didn't okay right. and um and so you know but but they're still americans and if they you know if they go to a jail for six months or a year or five years or ten years depending on what what they get charged with uh, they're still going to be my fellow Americans mm -hmm. um, when they come out. And, and so. Well, and I, I think I'm like that attitude is the, you know, the attitude you like is one of sort of forgiveness. I think that's missing a lot. I think the way I like to think about it and you tell me what you think is like, we should view our country the same, like we should view our country and our country's history the same way we would view, you know, a loved one or a family member's personal life and their history. It's like, or look at yourself. It's like, should you only, should you like, just our country has a history of bloodshed and a history of, of good things as well. Yeah. It's both. And so, and just like every person has a history of ter doing terrible things and doing good things as well. It's like, you have to acknowledge the darkness in your past but to pretend that that is the only reality and that defines you like that's that's self-hatred and then to do that for your country and say well our country has such a dark past this is what defines us it's like you have to love your country as you would you love a person or yourself and still acknowledge that darkness and that's the way to approach it healthily and say look no we have our flaws and we still have our systemic problems and our history proves it but we also have the capacity to grow and overcome and i think that that's a that's a more whole complete story of combining sure. the and, darkness and the good. You know, I've had friends say uh, to me, and I did serve in Vietnam, um, that they felt guilty because they didn't serve in Vietnam. And I, I said, well, you should put that out of your mind because I went so you didn't have to. And, and uh, you know, that's exactly one of the reasons that I went. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, wasn't because I thought I was courageous and they were wimps, not at all. Um, you know, somebody had to do it and, and that, that was my way, but it's not necessarily the, the way for everyone. And, right. and so if I hadn't been there, someone else would have had to do it. And, and so you know, if if everything's about thumping your chest and saying, "Oh, look how great I am," okay. Well, I had a, a shootout on on uh, responses on one of my videos where uh, I had said that we, we give away too many um, participation awards. You know, everybody gets a trophy. I think type that's thing, accurate. Yeah. Right. And and he said, "Oh, we don't do that." And I said, "Yes, we do. We do it all the time, everywhere. Just mm -hmm. look around." And so I said, I pointed out that nearly every decoration on any military 
individual is a participation award. Okay, and uh, right up to the right up to the fact of my bronze star. I have a bronze star with a V for valor on it, but I didn't get it for heroism. I got it for meritorious service, and so so you know I said look, that was a participation award for me being a first lieutenant in Vietnam. Um, but it, it's, it's not, you know, it's not glory. Mm. I mean, although a lot of people want to go around and beat their chest that it's glory. Yeah, well, you show me somebody with a Navy Cross or a Congressional Medal of Honor, mm -hmm. and then I'll think it's glory, right. or even a silver star. But but you know anything bronze star and below is basically you get the award for uh doing Being your in job. the campaign or something yeah doing oh, your job and you know in the military we after 90 days we give everybody a national defense service medal well that's a participation award interesting right and interesting what, so the so the 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 meme or the joke of we give everyone participation awards and how that affects people goes all the way up to the military even absolutely sure and and you know just i don't know if you watch the funeral of prince philip but behind the behind the altar there were all these ribbons and sashes and all sorts of shit that he had and you know so here's a guy who was a lieutenant commander in the British Navy. And he had been given command of a ship that was homeported in Malta. It was in peacetime. It, was, it, it wasn't during uh, the Suez crisis of 1956. Sure. It was before his wife had risen to the crown. And so he didn't get those awards because he was any bra this brave uh, naval officer, right? And you know, by the time he died, he had, he was like fleet admiral or something like that. Well, he did, he never did squat after sure. he, he had this ship right. out of Malta, right? Yep. And so, so it was all participation awards for him. Interesting. Yeah. He, yeah he just happened to he just happened to be married to the queen so right okay. oh yeah like connections interesting yeah um, so, um yeah anyway yeah so and we're coming up i think on um on a good time to stop i want to ask you this final question um so like i said i think when i look at the demographics of my youtube channel i get the analytics and i can see the age range and it's mostly 18 to 30 in that range mine um, too Right, right. So right. I want to ask, based on your own experiences and based on your understanding of what Jung might say, what advice would you give to someone at the beginning of their life, 18 to 30, in that range of flux? Certainly for me, it's been a time of like flux with doing this YouTube channel, kind of figuring out what I'm trying to do. What is your understanding of, you know, what, what's the best advice going forward or for someone in that range? Um make mistakes make as many mistakes as you can as fast as you can mm. um, i used to ask people um, in employment interviews what's the biggest mistake you ever made because it's a real truth teller mm. if if they claim some tiny little mistake then you know they're a liar and 
uh, if if they say a big mistake and describe it, then uh, you understand that they they're maybe a mature human being that might not rob you and so on, right? And and so. Um, you know, we learn through our mistakes, actually. And, um, and so, I mean, that is the biggest thing, but, you know, get into life, get a life, um, you know, do something, you know, mm -hmm. don't sit in your mother's basement and do video like games. Go out into the world, like, like Abraham being called from his tent to go out in the world. Yeah, go forth and and multiply, but right. you know, get get called into life by a woman. Okay, get married. Um, you know that that's the traditional way because then then you have to mature because all of a sudden you got a kid or three, mm -hmm. and and uh, you have to face the realities of what that means, and so. Um, but in order to do that make the mistakes early so you can develop well i mean you're, you're going to have the most successful life if you make the mistakes early right quite frankly interesting that's 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 optimistic and, i think well it is especially for and, and i tend to be a uh the glass glass is half full for me so i tend to be an optimist but the point is what whatever it is just find something and start doing it and um you know, you may be a miserable failure at it, but but then the next thing comes along, 